Here on Radio 191 FM, the Politrix Show. Uh, time 17 past 11, take you through till 12. I'm here with uh, Luca, who is a PhD candidate at the Politics Department here at the University of Otago, originally from Italy. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and you got your Master of Science at the London School of Economics, and by the sound of things, You've done pretty extensive research in the ex-Yugoslav states. You've spent a lot of time in Kosovo and Albania? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I was lucky enough to have Luca as a tutor and lecturer for the summer school paper, t- paper titled Politics of Corruption. Um, so, what's your PhD here at the University of Otago focusing on? What's your what's your thesis? Well, good morning, George, and um, first off, thanks a lot for inviting me uh, on your show this morning. Um, my thesis here at the university focuses largely on the effects of corruption and the organisation of informal practices in Albania and Kosovo on economic development. And in particular, I'm looking at the processes of industrial transformation, so I focus on the industrial economy of these two countries and how it has evolved and transformed in the aftermath of the post-war and post-socialist transition. Right. So the um, the the transformation from from a planned economy to to quite uh, to a, a capitalist economy um, integrated into the international uh, markets, or still kind of closed off, or. Yeah, I mean, these are definitely two key dimensions of the process of transformation of these industrial economies. I mean, as you you said quite rightly, one is the process of transition from command economy to a free market liberal uh, economy, and that's something that has to do with the structure of formal institutions that govern the economy. Then obviously there is a lot of transformation at the level of international uh, integration, especially when it comes to Albania, really, which was an entirely closed-off economy back Mm. in the day. I mean, not dissimilar to present-day North Korea, right? uh, really. Um, Kosovo was a little bit different, actually, because Yugoslavia had a form of sui generis socialism. And the economy of Yugoslavia was largely internationalized prior to the beginning of transformation. So Kosovo is a little bit of a, of a, of a, of an outlier in this sense. Um, but obviously, both economies, especially Albania, as I said, went through massive levels of international integration um, in the aftermath of transition. But what's said is that integration took place largely on the import ledger rather than on the export ledger. Right. So due to loss of competitiveness because of state retrenchment, lo- loss of state support and subsidies, and obviously market liberalization, mm. lots of industries that might have been competitive prior to transition within the boundaries of the socialist economy lost competitiveness and were completely wiped out in the right. process of transition. And that obviously affected the export competitiveness of these economies as well. Kosovo's, um, it's it's very very interesting, especially uh, I guess it's kind of larger geopolitical um, relevance. I, I get the sense that it's um, we're talking about this off year off air. It's it's like a UN quasi mandate or, or protectorate. I mean. The, his, the history of Kosovo, they, there was an intervention, right, in 1999 um, on the part of the Albanian minority or uh, Kosovo minority um, uh, against the Serbian um, leader. Uh, yeah. And this was sort of the first instance of um, 
NATO codifying the responsibility to protect a humanitarian intervention inside a sovereign nation's borders without consent and um, essentially trying to commit that act without formally declaring war. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the in, uh, NATO intervention of 1999 was largely couched in the language of humanitarian uh, intervention, and that sort of ushered, ushered in a whole period. Coming on uh, the back of massacres like Srebrenica. Yeah, right. And and yes. also failure in Rwanda would... You know, would that That's play, very yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's obviously that geopolitical dimension. There's a big debate in the context of international relations, which I'm not too familiar with, about um, when actually the massacres and the intensity of the conflict escalated relative to the point of intervention. Some say that actually things were largely under control in Kosovo in terms of inter-ethnic relations until NATO moved in. Right. Right. So the sort of big backlash on the part of the Yugoslav forces, especially all the paramilitary forces that were operative in Kosovo at the time, really kicked in after NATO moved in and started bombing uh, Belgrade. And the idea was that you know, so the thinking in the um, uh, upper echelons of the Yugoslav hierarchy was that, well, we are going to, if I may, fuck them all, mm. only if NATO com- comes in. In that right. case, we'll, you know, we'll go. The gloves are in. off. Yep. The gloves are off, and we'll and we'll move in full force, and we'll go for a massive expulsion of Albanians from Kosovo. Up until then, obviously, the level of inter-ethnic conflict was very high. It was very tense, but there was an ethnic cleansing. Arguably, there was a very rough and harsh form of ethnic policing, especially in the rural areas where the guerrillas were operative and for obvious reasons. I mean, if you have a guerrilla in a country, the state always retaliates very hard. Mm. This is just a question of balance of forces. The sovereign always tries to fight off any opponent that questions the Mm. right of the sovereign to rule. Um, But in the cities, actually, things were quite quite balanced. Well, Certainly, things are not escalated into ethnic cleansing. Maybe we can take a step back, and for our listeners who um, you know aren't as versed in uh, recent yep. Eastern European history, uh, just provide a, a brief synopsis timeline of you know we have these two countries, Albania, uh, the former Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. um, sort of within that Soviet sphere of influence. Um, how did we get to where we are today? What is the timeline of sort of uh, the independence yeah. of those nations and the fracturing of Yugoslavia. Sure. Yeah, I mean, neither country was really Soviet, uh, strictly speaking. I mean, Albania was in the Warsaw Pact until the early 60s, uh, until it broke off from Yugoslavia. Essentially, that coincided with the Sino-Soviet split in the early 60s, and Albania sided with Mao rather than with the Soviet Union um, at the time. And the only international ally of Albania was actually China for about 15 years, right. uh, up until the uh, late 70s when China went through its own process of internal transformation and Albania uh, completely condemned the post-Mao turn in uh, China. And interestingly, the only international ally that Albania was left with after China went off its own way was the mighty Communist Party of New Zealand. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, it's a very quirky piece of uh, history um, that uh, apparently when the writings of the former dictator of Albania, Enver Hoxha, reached uh, the North Island of New Zealand, <laughs> the uh, leaders of the Communist Party were thrown in a state of existential crisis, essentially, because <laughs> the uh, leader of Albania was condemning Mao, and they were Maoist, and they thought, well, you know, what's going on? Have we been wrong all along? So they actually travelled 
to Albania, and this is documented, you know, to get things right, get things straight. And when they came back to New Zealand, they declared publicly, yes, Albania is the only socialist country left in the world. Wow. <laughs> so they remained the only international ally of Albania during the decade of isolation until the, well, 1889, the fall of the Berlin walls and the beginning of transition all across the former second world, the socialist world. Um, Yugoslavia was a little bit different in that, again, it was a non-aligned country, so it wasn't formally part of the socialist bloc. Um, but obviously it was a sui generis socialist country. Uh, it's often called the regime, the economic regime that was in place, it's often called market socialism in the case of Yugoslavia. Um, very ethnically and religiously diverse country. Kosovo is majority Muslim, for instance, in general, most southern parts of Yugoslavia and Bosnia are majority Muslim. Then you've got the Catholics in the north and obviously the Serbs and the Macedonians that are Eastern Orthodox. Um, the process of transition coincided with a total unraveling of the country, essentially, along ethnic and religious lines. Kosovo was the last country to break away from Yugoslavia, and that was largely because of the prodding of the NATO intervention. Under the federal system of Yugoslavia, was Kosovo a republic, or did it was it one of those kind of special kind of um, status autonomous regions or something? Yeah, yeah, that was um, one of the key grievances of the uh, Albanian majority uh, of Kosovo. Mind you, Albanians are in the majority in Kosovo, and they've always been. Um, Again, this is very contentious, but in the, in recent history, at the very least, mm. uh, they've been the overwhelming majority of the of the population in the country. Serbs only make up about ten, maybe fifteen percent of the population now. About five percent after the NATO intervention. Um, so it didn't have the status of a republic. It wasn't an, an equal constituent republic of the Yugoslav uh, Federation. Uh, so it, was it was formally part of Serbia. It was formerly part of Serbia, so it was an autonomous region within the Republic, the Socialist Republic of Serbia, which was one of the constituent republics of the uh, um, of the Federation. However, after the 1974 constitution, which changed things around a little bit in the Yugoslav, in a very complex Yugoslav federal system, um, the amount of de facto autonomy that Kosovo enjoyed was comparable, for all intents and purposes, to the sovereignty enjoyed by all the other republics de sure. facto. Yeah. So if if we look at the uh, intervention, the NATO intervention, um, which was after the the uh, war in Bosnia and stuff, it was in 1999 as you said, if we look at it from a, a kind of these uh, realist theories and uh, liberal theories, what are the, what were the pragmatic national interest uh, motivations of of intervening as opposed to uh, protecting min minority? Why did NATO need an independent Kosovo or feel it needed an independent Kosovo? Well, I mean, the obviously, the as you said, the liberal justification differed drastically from what was arguably the pragmatic uh, or real justification of intervention. Liberals would say, well, the main motivation was humanitarian. Mm. So there was a major humanitarian crisis unfolding in the province. So the, you know, generosity and humanism of NATO was moved, yeah. and they moved in to make sure that things would not go completely to pot. Um, the and every war since then has been couched in those terms. 
Pretty much, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very convenient way of couching <laughs> um, international interventions. So no wonder that it's become fashionable as of late. But arguably, um, you could argue, I mean, maybe this is an excessive, an excessive fascination for conspiracy. But the Milosevic regime that was ruling Serbia was really the last bastion of non-free market, non-market economies in the region, in the former East Central Europe. Um, and um, it was paramount for the stability of the continent and in general for the sort of alignment of the world economy along free market capitalist lines that that regime be uh, uh, be completely thrown off Um, so one convenient way of unseating Milosevic was to touch him on his weak spot which was Kosovo Obviously, he was handling the crisis very in a very heavy-handed mm-hmm. way, so it was an easy, weak spot to pick on him. Uh, I mean, I'm not in any way sort of praising the Milosevic regime, which was a very no, that's a, uh, that, non-progressive, yeah, that's an important point, regime. and that comes up a lot in these mm. debates. Is is um, you know, criticizing American foreign policy doesn't mean that you're pro-Putin, for example. Yeah. You know, that I, I feel that comes up a lot in pop politics. At the yeah. Media. Sorry. No, I mean, that's absolutely the case. Um, it's it's interesting because, you know, now, um, l- like I said, we've seen a lot of these R2P interventions, um, NATO basically, or NATO countries saying we need to protect these humanitarians. And then on the other side, um, we have Russia um, and kind of, uh, you know, many people liken Putin to a, a new Soviet era. Mm-hmm. Although um, this intervention in Kosovo, it wasn't only the first time we saw this R2P excuse or yeah. whatever you want to call it. It was also, um, well, arguably in my mind, the first volley in this new Cold War. The old Cold War having only been over for about 10 years at mm-hmm. this point, and. The FSB or whoever it was behind the scenes um, in the Soviet sphere had regrouped after the shattering of their economy and uh, basically drew a line in the sand at Serbia, um, and NATO fought back. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, I'm no expert of international relations, but uh, it was. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that at that point in time, Milosevic was to the West what what uh, Gaddafi. Uh, was to the West about three, four years ago, much as the regime in Libya had been going through a process of transformation itself. Uh, it was a regime that was still talking tough to the West. Um, so very inconvenient regime. Um, often on the show, we, me and Abe talk a lot about uh, the geopolitics of conflicts like Ukraine and Syria uh, and disagree on them quite often sometimes. Kosovo has been used as kind of this rhetorical weapon in the West versus Russia and vice versa yeah. propaganda machine in uh, respect to Crimea. Yes. Are there similarities? I mean... Yes, that's right. I mean, Russia used Crimea, used the Kosovo example as uh, an excuse for their action in the, Crimea, the saying same in, same if NATO Georgia. wants to protect a military base within the bounds of one of our countries, we'll do the same to you. And they did the same in the 08 Georgia war as well with Abkhazia and, and South Ossetia. Do you see similarities, though? Is there any... I see lots of similarities, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. 
Would um, it be fair to say that NATO set the precedent they made their bed, now they have to sleep in it? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not a legal precedent, really. Uh, well, and Kosovo is not even internationally recognized necessarily, or not by all countries. Well, it's right. Yeah, precisely. About it's not half. recognized by all countries. It's recognized by about half the countries in the world, and it's recognized by the by the countries that count. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not a member so, of the United Nations. It's not a member of the United Nations. That's that's correct. Um, but it's interesting, actually, that when you um, hear U.S. diplomats talk, and in Kosovo you get uh, many opportunities to, to <laughs> listen to U.S. diplomats talk. Um, they always say that wherever they are in the world, in their previous postings, before they were posted to Kosovo, they were always tasked with promoting Kosovo's independence in the countries that they were ambassadors to, so lobbying the right, to get them to recognize. They were ambassadors to, to get them to recognize Kosovo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Should we um, move more towards corruption a- and development, I guess? Sure. Uh, with with globalization and as we've brought up quite a bit in this discussion neo uh, neoliberal economic policies how does that change the way that corruption functions in developing countries uh, how does how does the development policy the, you know the donor led of of the world bank and organizations like that does does corruption change and therefore the way to fight it change with neoliberalism or you know, is it the same fundamentally? Yeah, I mean, it's probably fair to say that the fight against corruption is one of those policies that is intrinsically or at least historically bound up with neoliberalism. Uh, not so much because it, it came to the fore at the same time as neoliberalism came to the fore, but rather it was added on to the neoliberal right. reform package to the neoliberal agenda as an important institution building component and it was seen that governance and the quality of institutions were key preconditions for the effectiveness of liberalization privatization and state retrenchment which are the key components of the neoliberal reform um, package so it came to be seen sort of as a as a as a prop up or as a necessary condition for neoliberalism to actually lead to positive economic outcomes. So you feel, feel it, it could just be a, a tool of, of international financial institutions, this this uh, anti-corruption agenda, a, a tool of liberalisation, neoliberalisation? It can be seen as that, on the condition that you do agree with the mechanism that the quality of institutions and the elimination of corruption is a necessary precondition for liberalisations to function. You could also see it as a... As a uh, as an easy excuse to justify the ineffectiveness of liberalization and obviously the 1980s as as is known were termed a lost decade for many developing countries mm. in the aftermath of the structural adjustment drive uh, promoted by the World Bank and the IMF I mean this is a fact growth rates completely plummeted uh, um, well really all across in the world economy but to a large I mean mostly in the developing world through the 19. 80s. So you can also see the whole good governance turn of the 1990s as a convenient excuse to say, well, sure, the 80s have not been quite so rosy as they were expected to be, but the reason is that reforms have not gone far enough. That's one way of looking at it. Another interesting question is actually whether uh, international multinational corporations, international business, actually do want developing countries to be less corrupt. 
whether the elimination of corruption is one of the preconditions for multinational corporations, for international business to actually invest mm. in um, low-income countries. This is a very interesting question, and I think there is the, 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 the mantra is that the sort of insecurity of property rights and instability created by corruption in many low-income countries deter foreign investment. But I think there is also a lot of good reasons to believe that um, in a context of institutional dysfunction, which is the case in most low-income developing countries, international business actually sees corruption as, a, as, a, as an easy tool to right. get things done mm. uh, uh, when they invest in, in developing countries. And if returns are attractive, as they are in many extractive industries, international business has never flinched, has never shied away from actually moving in and putting capital and moving capital to low wage, to low income zones. And so <clears throat> some of that spending would be used in, in corrupt ways, some of that investment. Right. Well, and I think um, I was talking with George uh, a couple of weeks ago when he had just attended your course, and it sounded like what he was saying, um, you know, in these uh, neoliberalization of economies, you're uh, stamping out corruption in the public sector only to then privatize that to the private sector where there's no oversight. Would that be fair to say? Um, it would be fair to say, yeah. It's um, obviously... It's to be determined whether corruption is stamped out uh, even in the public sector, really, as a result of this major drive of anti-corruption that was ushered in in the 1990s. Um, some corruptive practices are deeply embedded in the forms of informal governance that dominate governance in developing countries where formal institutions and the state are obviously weak, right? Not because of any fault of character, right, but just because the history of institutionalization and state consolidation is relatively short. So you can't expect state institutions to be strong. They can't do the job of governing and regulating social interaction and economic transactions. So to a large extent, the job of regulating and governing the political economy and the society is left in the hands of informal institutions or, or informal governance mechanisms. And many of the transactions, relations and practices that prevail in the fabric of those informal institutions are written off as, as corrupt. Right. Because by the lights... But there may be some organizational structure to them in the cultural context of that nation. Oh, there definitely is organizational structures. And this is what you study with regards to Albania and Kosovo. Explain mm. to us a little example of, um, you know, the alternative governance structures. Patron client networks, I think, is yeah, is what, what we yeah. would call them. Yeah, I think that's the that's the key term. Um, I wouldn't call them alternative because if you say alternative, it sounds like they're like a fancy sort of new thing, uh, like a hippie thing. <laughs> sure. But they really aren't. I mean, that's that's what you know. They're the most socially rooted institutions that really prevail, and are original in a sense, they're historically meaningful and they make sense historically in that sort of context. In in large swaths of the developing world, what we know what we know as the Weberian state, so the you know, legal, rational, consolidated state form with rational bureaucracies, monopoly over the legitimate means of violence and so on, is a relatively new thing and is historically bound up with a with experiences of colonialism 
uh, colonialists would go to the third, to the what we now know as the third world, and establish rational legal bureaucracies mm-hmm. uh, to improve the rate of exploitation, essentially. But in the process, they also left behind sort of vestiges of rational legal governance. Or alternatively, in the case of post-conflict countries like Kosovo, forms of Weberian state consolidation are intrinsically bound up with different forms of state intervention, namely post-war um, state-building, peace-building uh, missions, which in this important respect resemble uh, colonial regimes. So they go there and their job is to establish rational, legal, Western-style Weberian forms of uh, formal governance. Um, so actually they are the alternative forms of governance with respect to the local political economies. Sure. Right? The informal, what we regard as the informal or sometimes corrupt in inverted quotes forms of governance are not alternative by the lights of the local cultures and political economies. They're actually much more original and um, authentic. And you're saying these uh, these peacekeeping forces are akin to colonial armies trying to impose something other than that. I would like to make that point, but in the in in this context, uh, all I said is that they resemble colonial missions in this important respect. Yeah, that they contributed to the establishment of Weberian rational legal forms of governance for different ends, like. At least formally, for different avowed ends, for the colonialists, it was, at least in the beginning, a question of just sort of crude exploitation. But then, don't forget that later on, even colonialism was sort of couched in the language of the civilizing mission. Yeah, exactly. So even that acquired a humanitarian responsibility to protect sort of, sort of rhetoric. Um, you can argue that that rhetoric was, was much more phony than the present-day rhetoric of responsibility to protect, and that's probably true. Um, but they certainly resemble for, um, present-day post-war uh, state and peace-building missions in the sense that they both aim to establish Weberian Western-style rational legal forms of governance in countries that don't originally have that, that degree of state consolidation. And if I may add something, I think what you said earlier was very important, um, that patron-client networks and you know original pre-Weberian forms of governance in many in many developing countries have organizational structure and I like the way you put it actually obviously like all organizations they can come with different degrees of efficiency so there are good organizations efficient organizations and there are bad organizations less efficient organizations that comes in degrees and just like all organizations like firms states government departments radio stations and so on even patron client networks can come with different degrees of economic efficiency yes but it's not some anarchy uh, or corruption, as you say. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a system to it. Um, I wanted to ask one final question about Kosovo. I mean, looking back now, um, especially in all of these additional R2P interventions that have gone on, uh, the realization um, decades later that that was the beginning of the new Cold War. Um, we, what do you see as the future for Kosovo? I mean, is it Serbia doesn't exist in the way that it used to. Is it? Is there still the necessity? Um, you know, is it going to accede to the United Nations? Um, we're seeing a lot of these other type of R2P conflicts um, around the world. I mean, Kosovo is essentially being used as a giant military base in a lot of these modern conflicts and uh, a choke point uh, in the migrant crisis. 
Yeah. What what do you see developing there? Um, it's very hard to make any any predictions about what will happen and how things will move off the current impasse. But I think that certainly one of the priorities for any sort of political, institutional, let alone economic development of the country, really, is to cast off the, shack the shackles of external domination in the country. Um, obviously, there are good uh, reasons to favour forms, forms of self-governance in general, but I mean, the um, most important reason why casting off the shackles of external domination is crucial in a country like Kosovo is because, really, the interests of external interveners in Kosovo and the interests of the powers that loom large in determining policy in a country like Kosovo, namely the EU and the United States, are fundamentally at odds with the interests of Kosovo as a developing country. So there's no way that you can reconcile the interests of the EU, which are the interests of an advanced capitalist supranational bloc, with the interests of a developing country, because they're structurally determined in different ways, they're never going to be reconciled. So if you allow the EU and the US to make economic policies in Kosovo, those policies will of necessity be at odds with the interests of the country, they won't lead to positive development outcomes. Well, that is a strong statement. Um, but great to have you with us, yeah, Luca. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, very enlightening. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time we uh, have a discussion with you. And uh